This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. December 13th, 2006. A mid-season clash between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics at the Wachovia Center in Philadelphia. Despite being underdogs, the Sixers were holding their own. The score was tied at 43, still anyone's game. With 9.56 left in the third quarter, the Sixers' Andre Iguodala was defending the Celtics' Paul Pierce on the wing. In a bid to find some daylight, Pierce took a quick dribble and pulled up for a jump shot. The ball went past Iguodala's outstretched fingers and into the hoop. As the ball dropped through the net, referee Tim Donaghy blew his whistle. Foul on Iguodala. Pierce sank the free throw, giving Boston a three-point lead. 50 seconds later, Iguodala got switched onto the Celtics' Al Jefferson in the post. Outweighed and undersized, he was unable to stop the burly center from scoring a layup. Making matters worse, Donaghy whistled Iguodala for another foul. Normally, even Philly's passionate fans wouldn't voice their displeasure so loudly, but Iguodala was their best player. One more foul, and he'd have to sit for the rest of the quarter. Less than three minutes later, Iguodala was forced to the bench after committing a loose ball foul. Without him, the momentum swung in Boston's favor, and by the time he subbed back in for the start of the fourth quarter, it was too late. The Celtics went on to win 101-81, covering the four-point spread with ease. Anyone who had put money on the Celtics that night came away with a nice chunk of change in their pockets. And they had Tim Donaghy to thank. Without those two quick fouls on Iguodala in the third, the Sixers might have been able to pull out the win. But that was never going to happen with Donaghy at the helm. Unbeknownst to all but a select few, Donaghy had $2,000 riding on the Celtics' covering. However, Donaghy was gambling with more than just money. Sure, his job was at stake, but with a dangerous gangster watching over his shoulder, one wrong call could mean more than just his career. It could mean his life. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. 
I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first of two episodes on Tim Donaghy, an NBA referee who placed bets on games he officiated. This week, we'll follow Donaghy's rise to the elite circle of NBA referees. As he became obsessed with the thrill of being on the world's biggest stage, we'll see how he got pulled into the high-stakes world of underground betting, including putting money on his own games. Next week, we'll examine Donaghy's stunning fall from grace. With crime syndicates, the FBI, and the NBA all closing in on him, we'll examine how the Donaghy scandal changed the landscape of sports forever. There's a saying that the best referees are the ones you don't notice. But in the National Basketball Association, referees frequently find themselves in the spotlight. In such a fast-paced, physical sport, it's easy for even the most experienced officials to miss a call. Well, by and large, fans trust that the refs will officiate the games to the best of their abilities. But sometimes, it feels like the refs are playing for the other team. And, in the case of Tim Donaghy, they turned out to be right. When it came time to take the SATs, Tim Donaghy had to ace them. At least he did if he was going to get into Villanova. There was only one problem. The high school junior wasn't exactly academically inclined. However, Tim wasn't going to let that stop him. Come hell or high water, he would be on campus for the fall of 85. Tim knew that if he hit the books, he could maybe get a high enough score to get into Nova. But he wasn't about to leave things to chance. Rather than waste his time studying, Tim paid the smartest kid in school to take the test for him. Unfortunately, the ruse worked a little too well. The disparity between Tim's garbage GPA and his stellar SAT score was too large. Fortunately, someone in the Villanova admissions office took pity on him. Although his application was denied, he was allowed to enroll in the college's night classes. If Tim did well enough, he could reapply for full-time status the following semester. Tim took hold of this opportunity and didn't let go. By day, he cleaned fish at Super Fresh Food Market. At night, he dedicated himself to his schoolwork. The work and effort paid off. Within a semester, he was allowed to transfer and became a full-time student in the spring of his freshman year. The schedule change also gave Tim the time to enter the family business, basketball refereeing. His father, Jerry Donaghy, refed NCAA basketball, while his uncle, Billy Oaks, was an official in the NBA. On weekends, he started calling high school and recreational games around Philadelphia. He liked it enough to try and follow in his father's footsteps. But instead of the college game, Tim set his sights on the NBA. A year after graduating from Villanova in 1989, 23-year-old Tim took his first step towards that goal. He signed up for referees camp run by Dr. Aaron Wade of the Continental Basketball Association, or CBA. At the time, the CBA was the NBA's minor league. 
Dr. Wade was in charge of incubating officials in the CBA to eventually get sent up to the main event. Tim caught his eye, and Dr. Wade offered him the chance to ref in the CBA during the 1990-1991 season. But getting to the NBA wouldn't be easy. Refing in the minors was a lot of work for little reward. Tim was paid only $125 per game and would have to travel to small towns such as La Crosse, Wisconsin, Rochester, Minnesota, and Wichita Falls, Texas. It would be a slog, but refing in the minors was the only way for him to get to the NBA. Well, luckily for him, he had someone to share his burden. During his first season in the CBA, Tim met a 24-year-old flight attendant named Kimberly Strupp. It may have been a short 40-minute commuter flight between Rockford, Illinois, and Chicago, but it was long enough for Tim to know it was love at first sight. She was a huge sports fan, enjoyed traveling, and didn't take life too seriously. Tim convinced Kim to meet him for a date in Philadelphia, and she soon started coming to see him when he was on the road. Before too long, they were inseparable. With Kim at his side, Tim spent the next few years paying his dues in no-name towns with half-empty gyms. Together, they endured the cramped flights, the soggy sandwiches, the cheap motels. With Kim's support, Tim was able to stay focused on the promised land of the NBA. And in the fall of 1994, he finally got the call he'd been waiting for. He was going to ref in the big leagues. His first game was an early season match between the Indiana Pacers and the Houston Rockets on November 9th, 1994. At 27 years old, Tim was one of the youngest refs in the NBA. Normally, a rookie like him would be grouped with more experienced officials, but due to a scheduling quirk, all the officials that night were relatively green. Tim and his fellow referees were fighting an uphill battle from the opening tip-off. The NBA had just instituted new rules against hand-checking. Defenders could no longer use their hands to stop offensive players when they had the ball beyond the free-throw line. The idea behind the new rule was to make the game faster and more free-flowing. But that night, it had the opposite effect. Going into the game's final minute, Tim and the other refs had called 68 total fouls, far above the season average of 47. Fans were growing irritated by the constant start and stop, but it was the game's 69th foul that caused the crowd to reach its boiling point. As the game wound down, the Rockets had edged ahead of the hometown Pacers, but Indiana's high-powered shooting guard, Reggie Miller, wasn't going to let his team lose without a fight. With the shot clock about to expire, Miller had the ball in his hands on the perimeter, with only Houston's star center, Hakeem Olajuwon, to beat. As Miller began his shooting motion, Olajuwon rose up to block him. But Miller's feet didn't leave the floor. It was a pump fake, and Olajuwon had fallen for it, hard. With Olajuwon hurtling towards him, Miller rose into the air. The two men collided, with Miller's shoulder bearing into Olajuwon's neck. Tim was the closest ref to the play. It was up to the rookie official to make the game's most crucial call. He decided to blow his whistle. Only Miller wouldn't be the one going to the free throw line. Tim had called an offensive foul. The ball would go back to the Rockets. The call pushed an already angry crowd past its limit, and people started hurling objects onto the court. 
Tim hardly noticed the hail of drinks and whatever trash the fans had in their pockets. As he stood at center court, watching the chaos unfold, he was overcome with a surge of adrenaline. He was the center of attention, and he loved it. That night, Tim's fateful call was featured on SportsCenter. The show even included a shot of him standing at half court with debris flying everywhere. And despite the controversy, the league reviewed the tape and deemed that Tim's judgment had been correct. In his very first game, Tim saw just how powerful an NBA referee could be. Although many factors went into the Rockets' eventual 109-104 victory, it was Tim's foul call on Reggie Miller at the end of the game that had cemented the result. Tim found out in his early years as an NBA ref that not every official was a completely neutral arbitrator. According to Tim's memoir, Personal Foul, many of the officials in the NBA had personal agendas that dictated how they called the game. While they weren't making up rules on the fly, these referees would find ways to make calls that would punish or reward certain teams. For instance, longtime referee Dick Bavetta was apparently a company man through and through. To keep the on-court product exciting, he would favor teams that were on the losing end of a blowout and make calls that would help them get back into the game. These agendas could also extend to personal friendships or grudges. Tim claimed that referee Joe Forte gave preferential treatment to teams coached by Mike Fratello because he had a free dinner card to Fratello's restaurant. On the other side of the spectrum, Tim said that referee Steve Javi hated Allen Iverson and would do everything he could to get the superstar point guard in foul trouble. For his part, Tim was determined to remain as neutral as possible when officiating. The gig was just too good to risk, and he no longer only had himself to worry about. A few months into his first season in the NBA, Tim asked Kim to marry him. They eloped in early 1995. With a solid $69,000 salary that would keep growing as he gained more experience, they were able to settle down in an upscale suburb outside of Philadelphia. Tim took to his new lifestyle with gusto. By 1998, his fourth year in the league, he was earning enough to join the exclusive Radley Run Country Club in Westchester, Pennsylvania. At Radley Run, 31-year-old Tim reconnected with an old high school acquaintance named Jack Concannon. Although they hadn't known each other well when they were teenagers, Tim and Jack quickly developed a powerful bond over golf. Both men were ambitious social climbers and ruthless competitors. And for Jack, that competitiveness drove him to make a simple suggestion to Tim that would change their lives forever. One day, as they lined up at the first tee, Jack asked Tim if he wanted to put $20 on each hole they played. Tim hesitated. While he was no stranger to breaking rules, accepting Jack's wager could put Tim's job at risk. His contract with the NBA stated that referees were forbidden from gambling of any kind. That included friendly wagers on the golf course. But Tim had firsthand knowledge that his fellow referees didn't pay much mind to the rule against gambling. To pass the time on long flights, many of them liked to play a game called Liar's Poker. And it wasn't unheard of to spend some time in an out-of-the-way casino in the hours before a game. With that in mind, Tim agreed to the wager. Whether he won or lost didn't matter. 
As Tim hit that first drive, he felt that same powerful rush of adrenaline he got whenever he made a big call on the court. He knew he was violating terms of his contract, but the buzz he felt made it worth the risk. And plus, as long as they kept it quiet, a casual bet between friends was perfectly safe. But soon, the bets would get bigger, and the consequences would be more than just Tim's job. Coming up, Tim gets pulled into the dark world of underground betting. Now, back to the story. In 1998, 31-year-old NBA referee Tim Donaghy started betting on golf games with his buddy Jack Concanon. At first, they played for the relatively low sum of $20 per hole. Even though Tim's contract specifically forbade him from gambling of any kind, he figured such small, casual bets would never get the NBA's attention. But soon, $20 wasn't enough to really get Tim's blood pumping. Their bets started ballooning to hundreds of dollars per hole. Sometimes they'd even put a couple grand on the day's final putt. The gambling quickly moved from the golf course to the clubhouse, where Tim and Jack played in high-stakes backroom poker games. It wasn't unusual to win or lose $10,000 in a single night. With every hand Tim played, he was risking his career. But the thrill of gambling overshadowed any concern he had over getting caught. He was so obsessed with getting his fix that he was willing to leave the relatively safe confines of the Radley Run Country Club to get it. When Jack invited Tim to accompany him and a few buddies to the Borgata Casino in Atlantic City, he never even considered saying no. As they walked into the casino, Tim knew that all that stood between him and absolute ruin was the baseball cap he tucked over his head. But he wasn't thinking about the consequences he'd face if he got caught. He was thinking about the next bet he could place. As Tim's gambling obsession grew, Kim and their four little girls became little more than an afterthought. During the season, Tim spent the four days at home he had every month golfing with Jack or playing cards at the Borgata. Even during the off-season, he was barely home. For the next few years, Tim fell into a comfortable pattern, hit the road to ref games and gamble with Jack whenever he was back in Philly. And occasionally, he and a few other refs would gamble in local casinos before games, too. During one memorable trip from Portland, Oregon to Vancouver, Canada, Tim and two other refs stopped at three different Indian casinos as they made the six-hour drive up the I-5. Miraculously, the NBA never made a peep. Tim didn't know if the league's executives were aware of the refs' gambling, but they never said a word. Tim figured that as long as he and his fellow officials did their jobs well, the league was happy to turn a blind eye. But in May 2002, a major controversy in the NBA put Tim and his fellow officials under the microscope. That year's Western Conference Finals pitted the Los Angeles Lakers against their bitter rivals, the Sacramento Kings. Led by superstars Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, the Lakers had emerged victorious against the Kings in playoff matchups in 2000 and 2001. But in 02, it seemed like the Kings had the upper hand. Led by heavy hitters Chris Webber, Mike Bibby, Peja Stojakovic, and Vladi Divac, 
Sacramento was giving the two-time champs everything they could handle. Going into Game 6 in Los Angeles, the Kings were up 3-2. One more victory would send them to the NBA Finals. But according to Tim Donaghy, the NBA desperately wanted to stop the Kings from getting there. L.A. was the league's most marketable franchise. Aside from the team's historic legacy, they had won the last two championships. The Lakers' quest for a three-peat was a veritable gold mine. In comparison, the Kings were located in a relatively small market. Although they were the NBA's best team that season, their appeal paled in comparison to the Lakers. Going into the game's final moments, it looked like the league wouldn't get its way. With three minutes remaining, the Kings were up 92-90. But when Vladi Divac got called for a loose ball foul on the Lakers' Robert Ory, it changed the tide of the game and of basketball history. Divac was forced to the bench, and Ori got to shoot free throws. He made one of two, and after getting a defensive stop, the Lakers made another basket. With 2.32 left, the Lakers were up 93-92. The next time down the floor, the Kings' Lawrence Funderburk rose up for what looked to be an open layup. But Shaquille O'Neal had other plans. The Lakers star smashed his massive forearm into Funderburk's face in midair. Although the refs called a foul, the Kings coach Rick Adelman wanted it to be a flagrant. But the refs ignored his pleas. And despite being shaken up, Funderburk sank both free throws, Kings 94, Lakers 93. On the next play, Kobe Bryant drove to the hoop, but Chris Webber cleanly blocked his shot from behind. However, a foul was called against the play's secondary defender. Kobe swished both free throws, putting the Lakers up 95-94. It was a lead they would never relinquish. They went on to win 106-102. The referee's role in the Lakers' victory did not go unnoticed. Post-game reactions from NBA pundits and fans alike centered around the massive disparity in free-throw attempts. In the fourth quarter alone, the Lakers went to the line 27 times as compared to 9 for the Kings. Although nobody was willing to call it an outright fix, Washington Post columnist Michael Wilbon wrote an article centered on the swelling chorus of concern among everyday basketball fans that the league and or its partner, NBC, has an interest in either helping the league's most glamorous and marketable team or at least prolonging an already dramatic series. Tim knew that Wilbon had hit the nail on the head, and he also knew a fix when he saw one. The league had assigned Dick Bavetta as the head official for Game 6. He had lived up to his reputation as a company man and made the necessary calls to secure a Lakers win. The ref's perceived role in the fateful Game 6 brought unprecedented attention on NBA officiating as a whole. Regardless, the extra attention didn't do anything to curb Tim's gambling habits. And soon, those habits would place him under unwanted scrutiny. Sometime in the summer of 2002, Tim, now 35 years old, took a trip to the Borgata Casino with Jack Concannon and a few other high rollers. As they sat at their usual table, their friend George started to get hot. As George went up a whopping $150,000 on the night, Tim noticed the pit bosses whispering to each other on the edge of the crowd. Earlier that summer, 
A book called Bringing Down the House had detailed how a group of MIT students had won millions of dollars playing blackjack by counting cards. Well, since then, casinos had been on the lookout for people utilizing this strategy. While not technically illegal, it was heavily frowned upon. One of the pit bosses casually approached their group. He told Tim that he looked familiar and asked him to fill out an information card. Tim quickly pretended that he had to take a call and walked away. Whether or not he had actually been identified, or if the casino worker was just trying to gather people's information, Tim's fear was palpable. With the 2002 Western Conference Finals still fresh in people's minds, he knew there would be no mercy from the league office if he got caught. From then on, Tim vowed he would be more careful with his gambling. In October 2002, Tim and Jack were at the Radley Run Clubhouse when they started to talk about a golfing buddy of theirs named Pete Ruggieri. Pete was a professional gambler, and his flexible work hours made it easy for him to join Tim and Jack on the links. But Jack revealed that in addition to gambling on his own, Pete was also a bookie. At the time, sports betting was only legal in a small number of states like Nevada and Oregon. As a result, underground bookmakers such as Pete Ruggieri had developed a black market for people who wanted to gamble on sports outside of the legal states. Pete would set odds for certain events and in exchange for a transaction fee would place bets for his customers. Jack revealed that he had been betting with Pete for several years. Every weekend he would put money on 15 college football games and 15 NFL games. It wasn't necessarily profitable, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. He asked Tim if he wanted to join in. As much as Tim loved gambling, he wasn't sure it was such a good idea. He didn't think that friendly wagers on the golf course or playing blackjack at the casino were a particularly big deal. But placing illegal bets with Pete Ruggieri was something else entirely. Not only was it against the law, but it also violated the spirit of a referee's neutrality when it came to sports in general. And yet, Tim couldn't resist the pull of what Jack was offering him. It wasn't necessarily the money. By that point, Tim was making close to $250,000 a year. No, what really made Tim consider Jack's proposal was that adrenaline burst he got from betting. The stakes, the danger, all of it. Despite the risk... Tim agreed to Jack's proposal. Although bookies go to great lengths to maintain their clients' confidentiality, Tim was still concerned about leaving a paper trail. So instead of making bets himself, he simply bankrolled Jack. That way, if Pete's gambling ring was ever exposed, Tim would be protected, unless someone ratted him out. Confident he could trust Jack to keep his secret safe, Tim jumped wholeheartedly into their new gambling scheme. While he refused to bet on basketball, he loved betting on the NFL and college football. Soon, what limited time he already had at home was spent holed up in his basement, while Kim and their daughters remained forgotten upstairs. His passion for gambling had become a full-blown addiction. And after about a year, the thrill of gambling on football, baseball, and hockey was no longer enough. Like a drug addict in search of a better high, Tim needed to kick it up a notch. And like many addicts, Tim was about to make a fateful decision that would cost him his future. In late 2003, he started betting on the NBA. Coming up, 
Tim digs himself into a hole that he can never climb out of. Now back to the story. In the fall of 2002, 35-year-old Tim Donaghy made the decision to start placing illegal sports bets with a bookie named Pete Ruggieri. Feverishly tracking the results of the games they had money on gave Tim a rush that golf course wagers and casino visits couldn't provide. But like many other addicts, Tim needed to push the boundaries of what he was doing. In early November 2003, Tim and Jack were relaxing after a round of golf. As they looked through the newspapers at betting lines, Jack casually asked Tim how he felt about the odds on that night's NBA games. Both men knew that it was taboo for Tim to bet on basketball. For him to have a vested interest in the result of any NBA game would be a moral and ethical violation of the highest order. But Tim's gambling addiction had carried him far past the point of ethics. He only needed to examine the NBA betting lines for a moment. The picks were all no-brainers. For the next few weeks, they kept up the song and dance of making imaginary bets on NBA games. But they were just delaying the inevitable. By the end of 2003, they crossed the Rubicon and started putting real money on NBA games. Games Tim officiated. Tim has always maintained that he never conspired to fix a game in his favor. He's claimed that even in games he put money on, he was able to put his duties as a referee above his personal financial interests. Furthermore, he felt he didn't even need to take an active role in determining the game's outcome. According to Tim, his knowledge of his fellow ref's tendencies, along with inside knowledge like unannounced player injuries, was all he needed to pick a winner. And pick winners he did. Soon, Tim was collecting more cash than he knew what to do with. On any given day, he could have over $20,000 casually lying around the house. With so much at risk, Tim was wary of using his golf buddy-turned-bookmaker Pete Ruggieri for their NBA bets. He knew it would be easy enough for Pete to put two and two together when he realized that Jack's high school buddy Tim Donaghy was the referee for many of the games he put money on. Jack promised to use a different bookmaker. Tim had complete faith that his friend was telling the truth. But he shouldn't have been so trusting. Contrary to his word, Jack continued to place bets with Pete. By the time they started betting on NBA games, Pete had moved to the Caribbean island of Curacao to work with an online sports betting company called Play ASAP. With Curacao's lax rules on sports betting, companies like Play ASAP were free to place bets for clients around the world. Well, many of the Play ASAP, who called themselves the Animals, were Philly guys. They were aware that Tim Donaghy was good friends with their client, Jack Cannon. So when Jack started placing big money bets on NBA games, it didn't take long for the Animals to realize that Tim was the referee for many of them. And whenever he bet on Tim's games, Jack was making a killing. His bets were winners 60 to 70% of the time. It was as close to a sure thing as you could get in gambling. Soon, the Animals started placing their own bets on Jack's picks. But instead of the couple grand Jack was laying down, they were betting tens of thousands of dollars. Unbeknownst to Tim, he was their golden goose. Even though he didn't know that the animals were onto him, Tim began to get paranoid that the NBA was. Afraid he was being bugged, 
he would frequently change hotel rooms when he was on the road. On top of this precaution, Tim would make his calls to Jack from payphones several blocks from the hotel. But for all his safeguards, Tim couldn't control the animals. In 2004, Play ASAP went belly up, and the group went their separate ways. It's not entirely clear who Jack was placing his bets with at this time, but after former animal James Baba Batista set up a private bet brokering practice, Batista decided he wanted to be the one at the helm. For the time being, though, Batista's plan would have to wait. By January 2005, the stress from Tim's gambling addiction had started to take a heavy toll on him. That agitation manifested into a contentious relationship with his next-door neighbors, Pete and Lisa Mansueto. As a fellow member of Radley Run Country Club, Pete Mansueto had become one of Tim's golfing buddies and even accompanied Tim to the Borgata Casino on a few occasions. But as Tim's gambling spiraled out of control, his pent-up stress was released upon his friend and confidant. Well, sometime in late 2004 or early 2005, Tim called the police after the Mansueto six-year-old son threw some pebbles in his yard, perhaps driven over the edge by the stress his gambling was causing. Tim eventually set fire to his neighbor's tractor and drove their golf cart into a ravine. Well, things only got more contentious from there, and the Monsuetos filed a civil lawsuit against Tim. Two days after the suit was filed, Tim received a summons from Stu Jackson, the NBA's executive vice president of basketball operations. Tim couldn't believe it. He didn't think a dispute amongst neighbors warranted getting dragged into a meeting at the NBA's New York headquarters. He had no idea that Jackson wanted to talk to him about something far more serious. As Tim waited in a conference room, he was surprised to see Jackson walk in with some of the NBA's heaviest hitters. Deputy Commissioner Russ Granick, General Counsel Rick Buchanan, and Vice President of Security Bernie Tolbert. After a few general questions about Tim's dispute with the Monsuetos, General Counsel Buchanan dropped the bomb. He wanted to know if Tim liked to bet. Tim told Buchanan that while he did like to make friendly wagers with the guys on the golf course, he never bet on sports, and he denied ever going to casinos. But Tim knew his words rang empty. Buchanan wasn't asking him these questions out of the blue. He was sure that the Monsuetos had told the NBA about their dispute and he believed that they had told the league about Tim's gambling habits. While Pete Monsueto didn't know anything about Tim's sports betting with Jack Cannon, he was well aware of Tim's golf course wagers and his trips to the Borgata Casino. But for the moment, all the NBA had on Tim was Monsueto's word against his. And although Tim could tell that the executives were skeptical about his denials, he thought he was in the clear. He was wrong. Two weeks later, Tim received a call from Bernie Tolbert, the NBA's vice president of security. He asked him flat out if he gambled at the Borgata Casino. Once again, Tim denied it. But it was clear that the NBA was circling the truth. To get to the bottom of the story, the league hired an outside private investigator. When she spoke to various families that lived in Tim's neighborhood, they were all too eager to speak about his gambling habits. 
but like the Monsuetos, they only knew about the golf course bets and trips to the Borgata. Once again, this was only just talk. In the end, the investigator was unable to dig up any concrete evidence on any of Tim's gambling. Once the investigation concluded sometime around the spring of 2005, the only punishment Tim faced was for the bad judgment he showed in his dispute with the Monsuetos. He wasn't allowed to officiate the same amount of postseason games as he had the previous season, which amounted to a loss of approximately $15,000, less than 10% of his $250,000 yearly salary. And it was a relief compared to what could have happened to him if the NBA had discovered he was betting on basketball. Tim knew he got off lucky and was essentially given a chance at a clean slate. And while he did use the opportunity to move his family out of Pennsylvania and down to Florida, he made no attempt to curtail his gambling habits. During the investigation, he had stopped placing bets with Jack in order to avoid detection, but now that the storm had passed, he was ready to jump back into the action. As the 05-06 season dawned, Tim was ready and raring to go. During the regular season, he bet on 30 to 40 of the games he officiated, about half of his total assignments. Throughout it all, former animal James Batista was keeping an eye on the betting lines. Pleased with what he saw, Batista decided to make his move in the early months of the 06-07 season. By November 2006, word had begun to spread that there was someone out there making astonishingly accurate picks for NBA games. As of yet, nobody else had realized that person was Tim Donaghy. Batista wanted to keep it that way. In early December, he placed a call to a mutual friend named Tommy Martino. Batista asked Tommy to set up a meeting with Tim. Eager to get in on the scheme, Tommy was happy to oblige. The meeting took place on the night of December 12, 2006. Tim met the other two men in front of the Philadelphia Airport Marriott Hotel, and they sped off in Batista's Honda sedan. Both Tim and Batista have offered different accounts of what happened next. According to Tim, they drove to a nearby convenience store while Tommy and Batista revealed they knew Tim was betting on NBA games with Jack Concanon. But as Batista tells it, they stopped the car on the side of the road to smoke a joint before he broke the news to Tim. In Tim's version, he was coerced into working with Batista after the former animal insinuated he was connected to New York's Gambino crime family. But Batista and Martino insist that Tim was eager to join their scheme, especially after Batista revealed that Jack Concanon was making much more money on the bets than Tim was. Regardless of the circumstances, there is no dispute over the arrangement that the trio hammered out over appetizers at the airport Marriott's restaurant. In exchange for giving his picks to Batista instead of Concanon, Tim would receive a $2,000 flat fee for every winner. If he picked wrong, there would be no penalty. Batista agreed to eat the loss. The very next night, December 13th, Tim gave Batista his first pick. He was slated to officiate a game between the Philadelphia 76ers and the visiting Boston Celtics. The relationship between the Sixers and their star point guard, Allen Iverson, had broken down past the point of no return, and he was deactivated while the team tried to trade him. 
Meanwhile, the less talented but plucky Celtics would be playing their hearts out. Tim told Batista to bet Boston. In Tim's memoir, he claimed that once the game tipped off, he was able to put all thoughts of his arrangement with Batista out of his head. If he's to be believed, Tim called the game clean. But evidence has pointed that he may have been actively involved in determining the result. With the score closely tied early in the third quarter, Tim called two quick fouls on Sixers star Andre Iguodala. With the small forward forced to the bench, the Celtics were able to pull away. Boston got a 20-point win, and Tim got his $2,000. And in the next few months, his partnership with James Batista would yield much more than that. But the good times couldn't last forever. Eventually, someone else would catch on to Tim's bets on NBA games. That somebody was the FBI. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with our second and final episode on Tim Donaghy. As Tim's bets attract the FBI's attention, the full extent of his corruption will be revealed to the world. And we'll ask the most important question of all, did he actively fix games in his favor? You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.